0: Today on something you should know, neat or cluttered, which is a better work environment? Well, it may depend on what you're trying to accomplish. Then, are there aliens among us? Is there life on other planets? What does the science say? There's probably a hundred billion stars in our galaxy and if 25%
1: of them, and that's a conservative estimate, you might have a habitable planet, and you're talking about 25
0: billion habitable planets, I mean, when you get into the numbers game, it's just overwhelming. Also, I'm sure you talk to yourself out loud, everyone does. So why do we think it's so weird when we see other people do it? And manipulative people, they try to make you think you're wrong and they're right. They're called gaslighters.
2: For gaslighters, lying is like breathing. And the only way they know how to interact with people is through manipulation. So if you try to leave, the gaslighter will say, everything will be different this time, please come back. That's called hoovering, just like the vacuum. They're trying to suck you back in.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the
2: world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome. This episode of Something You Should Know is being released in the early hours of Thanksgiving morning. So if you're listening on Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if you're listening after Thanksgiving, well, I, I hope you had a good one. First up today, neat or messy, which is better? Albert Einstein was quoted as saying that if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, what then of an empty desk? When he said that, he was defending his own habit of being less than neat. But what does science say about messiness and neatness? For an experiment, volunteers were placed in either a clean, organized room or a cluttered, messy room. They were then asked to complete a series of tasks in these rooms, such as choosing a snack, donating money, or figuring out different uses for a ping-pong ball. Results revealed that both rooms had measurable effects on those tasks. For instance, those people placed in a neat room ended up more likely to donate to charity or choose healthy snacks. Those in the messy rooms, meanwhile, tended to outperform their neater counterparts in creative tasks. When the volunteers were asked to choose between a new product or an older, well-known product, those in the cluttered room chose the new product more often, while those in the orderly room went for the classic, more reliable item. According to the lead researcher, these results suggest a neat atmosphere encourages convention and playing it safe, while messy environments seem to inspire breaking free of tradition, which can produce insight. Okay, that's fine, but being messy also has its downside. Several studies have shown that a messy environment causes stress, and an organized home has been linked to improved levels of happiness. So you can argue both sides of the issue. And that is something you should know. (laughs) A topic I've never discussed before on this podcast is UFOs and are there aliens out there? Because, well, (laughs) the conversation can get a little wacky. Yes, there are plenty of people who claim to have seen a UFO and have encountered aliens. But the hard evidence that these events really involve creatures from another planet, it's pretty sparse. And I've always believed that if aliens are going to come all the way to Earth from some galaxy far, far away, why would they do that? Why make the trip and then just visit a guy sitting in a rowboat in a swamp in the middle of the night? Why not just land the spaceship at noon in the middle of Times Square and say, we're here? Still, it's an intriguing idea that there is life out there, whether or not any of these life forms have traveled to Earth. So what does the real science say? Joining me to discuss that is Michael Wall. He's a senior writer at Space.com, whose work has appeared in Scientific American and on NBC television, and he is author of the book, Out There, A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. Hey, Michael, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. So since you're a science guy, where do you come down on this topic? Uh, uh, have we been visited by aliens? Are there aliens out there? W- what's your take?
1: There's a lot going on right now that's kind of like reshaping our own thoughts about our own place in the universe and whether we might be alone. And, and I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that, that the U.S. government has found aliens and is kind of hiding them away in a meat locker in Area 51 or anything like that. But what we found out over the past few years is that there are a lot of exoplanets out there that might be suitable for some form of life, probably like, I mean, little microbes and stuff like that. And there are even worlds in our own solar system that might be habitable. That That's stuff that we've just been learning in the last decade or so. So my own personal hunch is that I think that we're not alone. There's just too many stars out there with planets, too many planets that actually might be good for life. And then, I mean, based on what what happened here on Earth? I mean, microbes got started here on Earth about four billion years ago. So that was pretty much as, yeah, as soon as like our planet had cooled down enough after its formation to actually support life, that's when life got going. So that suggests that it's not that hard for that to happen, which which further suggests that it's probably happened elsewhere, too. But it's still speculation.
0: Right, because uh, just because it's possible doesn't mean we have evidence of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we found evidence of a visitation or of intelligent life. I mean, people have been looking for that. And I mean, I know there, there are a lot of people out there who who, who who see strange things in the sky or claim to have been visited. And I'm not discounting those people and saying that they're crazy or they have ulterior motives or anything like that. I just don't think that that the evidence for intelligent life is like kind of meets that standard that that we can accept that it's out there. I mean we're trying to find it and I'm optimistic that it's out there somewhere, but I but I don't think that we've found any any conclusive signs of
0: yeah of of intelligent life yet. What about non-intelligent life?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. There are some people out there who claim that we do that that we have found evidence of it. There there are a group of scientists who still think that like the Viking Mars missions back in the 70s, they actually found evidence of of some kind of microbial life on mars and i mean most scientists don't think so so there are reputable scientists who think that we we may well have have already found evidence of some kind of alien microbes i mean chiefly mars microbes but yeah it's just the like standard of proof is so high and this is this is one of those finds that will go down in in yeah in human history as maybe the greatest scientific discovery ever so there's there's a huge hurdle to, to sort of clear for, for that to be accepted. You know, this is one of the epical discoveries of all time that we're talking about. Scientists aren't just going to be like, yeah, that that's probably right. They're going to demand something really convincing. The
0: conversation about life elsewhere... Do, is there any sense of when that started? Uh, you know, I mean, is this a fairly recent phenomenon with the advent of of modern science? People started to think, "Hey, well, maybe there's something out there," or have people been speculating about this for you know thousands of years, or is it somewhere in the middle, or what?
1: Yeah, this this goes back to the ancient Greeks, pretty much. Yeah, they were looking up in the skies and kind of thinking about what might be out there. And that's been an undercurrent, I mean, throughout scientific thought for. Yeah, I mean, Ever since then, but it had always been kind of a fringe proposition or a fringe field and But that's really changed in the last 15 20 years or so and that's that's the result of some discoveries We've made. I mean, we know there's a ton of exoplanets out there I mean, you know every star that you see in the sky on average has it has at least one star and Probably 25% of those stars have have a planet in the habitable zone That's about like the same size as our own planet so like a world that that we think might be capable of actually supporting life as we know it. And that's just a huge number. I mean, you're talking about there's probably 100 billion stars in, in our galaxy. And if 25% of them, and that's a conservative estimate, might have a habitable planet. And you're talking about 25 billion habitable planets. I mean, when you get into the numbers game, it's just overwhelming. And so people have started taking this seriously. And we, we I mean, this is something that's just dawned on us in, in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, people always kind of suspected that there were a lot of planets out there. But it's one thing to suspect, and it's another thing to go find them. And that, that's what scientists really started to do in the last
0: decade or so. Um, but just because planets have life on them, uh, and the numbers are seem staggering, that the the chances are so likely... Doesn't necessarily mean they have spaceships and you know uh, silver suits and helmets and you know it just it just means there could be plant life, there could be dinosaurs, there could be uh, microbes. I mean, it, it, it's a big jump to go from there's life on other planets to we must have been visited. Yeah,
1: yeah, that and yeah, and that's a really good point because I mean, if you look at our own Earth, I mean, life got going here about probably about four billion years ago, but but it stayed microbial only for actually more than three billion years after that. So so we don't see animals in in the fossil record I and mean, multicellular organisms don't start popping up until about 600 million years ago. So there was a long stretch of like 3.4 billion years where there were only microbes on earth. And that suggests that, I mean, while it might not be too hard for microbial life to get going, there is some like pretty, yeah ho- yeah, high hurdle that you have to cross to actually start forming animals, plants, complex organisms. And then there are all these other hurdles along the way. I mean, after that happened, it still took hundreds of millions of years for, for us to evolve. You know, we're, I mean, we're only here, I, I mean, our species probably about two, about 200,000 years old. And only in the last 100 years have we become truly technological. So, so, I mean, life on earth, it took probably about 4 billion years from when the first microbes got going to the time when we are capable of actually reaching out to other planets. I mean, building spaceships, sending radio waves out into space,
0: that's taken four billion years. So it seems like that's a pretty hard thing to do. Can science, do you think, with its very high bar, can it just write off all of the UFO sightings and the alien contact, all the stories of, you know, I, I was captured by an alien? I mean, is it just human nature that that people will be people and they'll make stuff up like that, or that or they'll be delusional and actually think that? And and science can just say, uh-uh.
1: I don't want to discount people's personal experiences. I don't claim to know what people think they saw or or what what like happened when when somebody had a traumatic experience or thought they were visited. Um, I mean, like what I will say though is that people need to keep an open mind. I mean, I think like a year and a half ago or so, you know, it hit the news. It was a big story that these like Navy pilots there. So there was that footage of, um, that weird light blob thing, like zooming off, off of the coast of San Diego. And, and it was seen by like Navy pilots and nobody knew what it was. It was on the front page of New York times. I mean, I'm not somebody who would immediately just claim that that's nothing and that we shouldn't investigate it. I mean, I don't think that that, 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 that was an alien spacecraft. I think there, there are probably other explanations for what it could have been, but I think, What people just need to keep an open mind and actually think about that as like a real possibility and and, and to investigate it. Don't just like dismiss it out of hand. You know, I think that's that's important. And that's that's part of a scientific mindset is to not just just like dismiss one
0: hypothesis out of hand because it seems weird or crazy. Michael Wall is my guest. He is a senior writer at Space.com. And he's author of the book Out There, A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. So, Michael, it seems that every discussion about aliens and UFOs at some point always comes back to Area 51. That this place in the desert, Area 51, is where the government has (laughs) something going on. They've captured an alien and they're keeping it there and... So what is Area 51 and why is it so tied to this discussion?
1: It is a real facility and yeah, it was a military facility. I mean, I think it still is and it's like over the years it was pretty much like an advanced aircraft testing facility, which would explain like all the secrecy, you know, they they were developing military aircraft technology there and there were signs up for people to stay out and it was all cryptic and nobody would talk about what was happening there because they were actually developing advanced military technology there and like when you have secrecy that's when you can get conspiracy theories and so that's like the kernel at yeah like at the heart of the area 51 myth there there are no alien spacecraft there 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 are no alien bodies there that also speaks to to who we are as a species we like i mean our like brains like to connect dots that aren't necessarily there and of course if the dots form a very interesting picture then we seize on them It's just more fun to actually believe that there's something crazy going on there. It just makes us happy. It makes us excited to think about. And I think that's that's sort of part of the psychology that goes into these conspiracy theories, too.
0: Even if there is life on other planets, aren't they so far away that to go there would be, I mean, impossible? Because it would take hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of years to get there.
1: Yeah. I mean, with our current technology, just to give you... like a little perspective the closest star proxima centauri the closest star to the sun is about 4.2 light years away i mean it doesn't sound like a lot but uh, but like a light year is very very far um and it would take us about a hundred thousand years if we launched like a traditional spacecraft with a chemical rocket that's how long it would take for us to actually get there people are trying to find i mean trying to invent faster technology faster propulsion technology but we aren't really close to anything that would capable of like propelling humans at any kind of fraction of the speed of light which is what we'd need yeah that is one explanation for possibly why we haven't like gotten a visit um because even if these intelligent aliens are out there it would just be so hard to go across all the huge depths of space and you'd have to be really motivated to actually do it to, to spend all that energy and all that time and it's just unclear if like the reason that we haven't like had a visit is because there's nobody out there, at least nobody around in our neighborhood, or if there just hasn't been significant motivation for them to mount that kind of mission, which would take so much time and so much effort. I mean, a lot of people who actually wonder about why we haven't been visited with all those numbers that we were talking about earlier. If it seems like there should be somebody out there, why haven't we gotten any peeps out of them or any visits? And um, yeah, that's, that's just one of the possible explanations.
0: Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today that's geico.com often in the in the news um i saw something not not too long ago there's always the you know those blurry videos of people that, that take this thing up in the sky and it looks like lights and it, it disappears and and it's a ufo it's an unidentified flying object and you know, of course, just because you can't identify something doesn't mean it's an alien. It just means you can't identify something. But but, but does anybody ever follow up with those and figure out what they were? Or are a lot of those really, we uh, we have no idea.
1: And that's a really good point. I mean, UFOs do exist because there are things people see that they can't identify. So it's not like those are myths. People do see things and they're like, what is that? And if you can't identify it, it's a UFO. But yeah, there are astronomers out there who who do sort of keep a catalog of those and try to check them out and try to figure out what people saw yeah usually it's actually a planet it's it's usually venus or something you know because because people look up in the skies and they're they aren't like astronomers and they're not like totally clued into to what's up there so they see a bright light and maybe they're they're like driving down a road or something and it looks like the light's moving and they hadn't noticed it before I mean, it turns out a lot of times that's actually a bright planet, such as like Venus or or actually Saturn can get pretty bright too. Jupiter can get pretty bright. So that's what it is a lot of times. I mean, a lot of times it's it's an airplane or some other aircraft. Um, that's usually what it turns out to be. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that being said, there are cases over the years that people have investigated and still don't know what they were. I mean, it doesn't match up with the planet and it doesn't seem like it was an aircraft, but nobody really knows. And so, yeah, I mean, you can't discount everything and say we have all the answers to everything. There, there are still there's still some sightings that people have actually looked into and don't really know what what they were.
0: But because they don't know what they were doesn't mean they were alien spacecraft coming to colonize and take us over.
1: Right, I I would agree with that very <laughs> yeah. much. Just I mean, just because we don't know what something is, doesn't mean you should immediately jump to the most exotic explanation. Its chances are that it's something that we just hadn't thought about here on Earth. That's far more likely than it was an alien spacecraft, because I mean, and yeah, I mean, if you think about it a little bit, I mean, alien spacecraft they would they would have to be incredibly advanced to actually make it here, far more advanced than than we are. So you would think that if they wanted to stay hidden from us, then they could easily do that. So it seems weird that they would sort of, they would come here and stay hidden to most of us, but expose themselves to a few people out in the boonies. And for some strange reason, I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, right. Well, as I was said in the beginning, its they never land in Times Square. and They're always out in a swamp or in some very rural area where hardly anybody is and the person who's there either doesn't have a camera or manages to get some very blurry images that yeah sort of maybe look like i guess that could be an alien
1: yeah yeah and if an alien spaceship did descend on times square and 500,000 people got pictures of it with their cell
0: phone then 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 we could talk <laughs> <laughs> you're right <laughs> now okay now that's what i call proof that's really yeah, yeah. that's really something and and it, it is interesting that in popular culture anyway, that that there is sort of a theme commonality of what aliens might look like. And, and I wonder where that comes from. Is it just somebody's creation? I mean, why, why do people think they would look so different than us, or would they look different than us, or yeah
1: that those are all really interesting questions and i mean i think there are a couple answers to the like why do we think that they that they look like us sort of thing i mean first of all because in the golden age of sci-fi which is really started in the 50s and went through the 60s with star trek and all those shows i mean there was no cgi back then really so you had to have like a human in a costume playing an alien so it was just easier and it was a lot cheaper to just paint their faces blue or put some bumps on them or give them horns or something, but they still had like a very humanoid shape um, because that just was practical. So that kind of became enshrined as like, as like sort of as the alien. And I mean, we relate more to creatures we can identify with in stories and film. So if we see something that's so alien, it doesn't kind of grab us. I mean, if you do a show about a sentient blob of gas or something where it's, it's just not going to hook us as much as if, if the protagonist kind of looks like us and acts like us and we can identify with it.
0: Where are we now and where are we headed with space travel in general? It does, you know, it doesn't seem like we do a whole lot of it like we used to, or at least it doesn't get the press that it used to, um, but, I mean, there are people on the space station. I mean, there there's stuff going on, so what's the what what's it look like? Are there any big advances in space travel?
1: There's a lot going on in 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 the private space sector. I mean, obviously Elon Musk is an obvious one. I mean, SpaceX they are working to actually get us get get a human settlement going on Mars. Elon Musk wants to have like a million person city on Mars in the next century or so, and he's serious about that. That's not a stunt. That's what he. That's why he founded SpaceX in 2002 was for that reason. Um, so that's really exciting. I don't know if it's gonna happen as quickly or to the dramatic extent that that he hopes it does But I I would not like discount what they're trying to do at all And and there are other people with very deep pockets trying to accomplish similar things. I mean Bezos um, Like the richest man in the world has his own private spaceflight company called Which is called Blue Origin like they don't get as much press as SpaceX They've been a little more under the radar but they have similar aims. I mean, he—they've—they've they've said that their main goal is to get millions of people living and also working in space, and so they're also working to 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 kind of get us out there in a sustainable way. I'm I'm not sure when all this stuff is is going to happen. People have been dreaming these sort of the these like utopian space dreams for a while, but now there's people with deep pockets and advanced technology who are actually doing it so i mean i'm i'm like pretty optimistic about that as far as human settlement going to the moon going to mars getting off earth for the first time in a real sustainable way i think i think that's coming in the next generation or so
0: so what keeps you up at night what's the thing that you're most excited about when you look to the skies and look up at the stars what what is it that's really pumping you up
1: based on what we've learned in the past 10 years or so with like how many exoplanets there are how many of them might be suitable for our own type of life i mean what what we define life to be and i mean how many th- there there are a handful of places in our own solar system there there are these moons in the outer solar system jupiter moons and it's like one moon of saturn two moons of saturn actually that have subsurface oceans that could support life i mean i think that we're that that we're going to discover some sort of simple life fairly soon maybe the next 10 years 20 years I mean that's just a hunch I'm just predicting it but I mean I think we're getting to the place where we can actually be optimistic about that and like we can mount missions that will really answer one of the most fundamental questions in the universe is are we alone and um I'm that's what I'm most excited about I like I think we're in a, in a good spot to actually s- start tackling this this amazing question that people have been thinking about for thousands of years.
0: One thing I, I meant to ask you about earlier, and because it's one thing for people out in the swamp to say, you know, they've been visited by aliens. But we do hear sometimes airline pilots see things, uh, military pilots see things. And theoretically, these uh, people are more knowledgeable about what's out in the sky to see. So does anybody ever come back and say, well, yeah, we figured that out or, or no, that's, we, we don't know what he saw?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then those are some of the sightings people take, take the most seriously people who, who are used to looking at the sky and like, and, and know what they're looking at most of the time. So yeah, if, if an airline pilot, military pilot sees something weird, then that, that would get a little more credence than just some person out in, out in the boonies who saw a weird light in the sky and wasn't sure what it was. Yeah. And so the yeah, UFO investigators, people who kind of try to get to the bottom of this, um, they, like they would probably take like an airline pilot sighting a little more seriously and investigate it a little more rigorously maybe than the average sighting. Definitely.
0: And when they do, it, it, what happens typically?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, usually it turns out to be something like very prosaic, just, just like in most cases, but yeah, there, there are some that they haven't explained where they're not quite sure what it was. And, um, And in some of those cases, you know, I mean, it might be an advanced aircraft that was being tested by the military and moves really fast. And we're not sure where it came from, or like the government won't talk about it. That's always like a possibility too. And maybe, maybe even like military fighter pilots aren't privy to what, that like machine is that was being tested and wouldn't know about its movements that that's always a possibility when you're talking about like seeing sights in the sky it's just important to keep an open mind i think I, i don't think we should dismiss any of these out of hand
0: well like everyone else i have looked up at the stars at night and wondered you know are we alone will creatures come to visit us have they already Uh, it it kind of boggles the mind and it's fun to speculate, but it's also good to have a a bit of a grounding in the science of it all. Michael Ball has been my guest. He is a senior writer at space.com and his book is called Out There, a scientific guide to alien life, antimatter and human space travel for the cosmically curious. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Michael.
1: No, no, I really appreciate it. You asked really good questions and yeah, yeah, it's really fun to talk about.
0: This year, you don't need to reinvent yourself. Every day is a chance to build your future. And M1 Finance wants to help you keep building on what you started last year and the year before that. M1 is the finance super app where you can invest, borrow, save, and spend all in one place. More than half a million people already have accounts with M1. It's easy to set up your account, and M1 is designed to be personalized for your needs. Invest how you want, with access to fractional shares and unmatched automation for free. You can borrow against your investments at super low rates, just 2-3.5%, to and use this flexible portfolio line of credit for anything, like investing more into your portfolio, refinancing other loans, or funding large projects. M1 ties it together in a free, digital account, so you can have more flexibility and smoother money movements. Just keep in mind, borrowing involves higher risks, and rates may vary. Visit m1finance.com something to sign up and get $30 to invest. Remember, that's m1finance.com something. Terms and conditions apply. I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's hard to imagine going through life and not having to deal with manipulative people. These are the people who make you think or try to make you think that there's something wrong with you if you don't do what they want or think the way they do. There's a term for this, it's called gaslighting, and it refers to a play from the 1930s that was made into a movie in the 1940s called Gaslighting, with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, where the husband manipulates his wife to try to make her think she's going crazy by telling her that the lights that she sees flickering are not really flickering, that she is hearing and seeing things that aren't there when they clearly are, that she has somehow lost valuable items that he has purposely removed to the point where she just she can't trust herself anymore. She must trust him because she it must be going crazy. Now there is a book about this called Gaslighting by Stephanie Sarkis. She's a licensed mental health counselor who says that gaslighters use your own words against you, lie to your face, deny your needs, plot against you, turn family and friends against you, and more. I suspect you've come across these type of people, or maybe even have them in your life today. And Stephanie joins me to discuss this. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So my first question is, where's the line? Because we're all trying to manipulate and persuade other people. I mean, we're human and that's what we do. As we navigate through life, we try to get people to do what we want them to do. So when does it become abusive? because you know we're all manipulating others to some extent
2: That's an excellent point. We all use influence to get what we want. We see that in advertising. We see that in sales. Again, yes, we do that to each other too. This is where it's used deliberately to abuse people, to control. And usually when we're using influence, we're not trying to control or abuse people. We're just trying to get them to see our way. Uh, This is very different. This is taking someone's reality and completely lying about it and turning it on, on its head and blatantly lying to the point where you don't notice the little lies because they seem so inconsequential compared to the huge lies you're being told. So it has a whole different flavor to it.
0: So give me an example.
2: Sure. Someone saying that what you saw or heard never happened. Uh, Someone hiding their stuff and then blaming you for uh, you stealing it or hiding it on them when they in fact did it. Also, pitting you against people, saying, you know, so-and-so said something about you. And instead of going to so-and-so, you just get mad at that person. And that's what the gaslighter wants. The gaslighter wants you to get mad at other people so you cling closer to the gaslighter. Also, sabotaging you at work, uh, taking credit for your work. But it goes beyond that. It's also going to the boss and lying to the boss about something that you didn't do. Uh, Also, uh, telling you things would be better if only you did blank. Uh, this happens a lot, especially couples I see in therapy. One will say, well, if you just fix this person, then everything will be fine. That's a tip-off to me that there's some gaslighting going on.
0: So why is it, I, and, and I don't know what if there's any numbers or, you know, what percentage of the people are gaslighters, but wh- wh- why would wh- why would I do this? Why would I, other than to just be a jerk, why would I tell you something that isn't true or... Or, or sabotage you? I mean, w- why do people do this?
2: For gaslighters, lying is like breathing. It's essential to their well-being. And the only way they know how to interact with people is through manipulation. They do something called cognitive empathy. And what that means is they'll express to you feelings, but they aren't really feeling them. They'll express feelings the way that they think you want to hear them. So they may apologize for something, but it's not a heartfelt apology. It's an apology that's made in order to get you back into their grasp. So if you try to leave, the gaslighter will say, everything will be different this time. Please come back. That's called hoovering, just like the vacuum. They're trying to suck you back in. Because when gaslighters no longer have that narcissistic attention, they will seek it out. And again, they'll try to get you back in the relationship. So I tell people, if you're leaving a gaslighter, you need to go no contact, no phone calls, no emails, block all of that, because the person will try to get you back if they haven't already moved on.
0: So from the perspective of the person on the receiving end of this, help me understand what that's like. What does it feel like? What does it seem like when gaslighting is happening to you?
2: So what it looks like is that gaslighters will erode your self-esteem, and so they will pick at you little by little. Now, I'll back that up and say that at the beginning of the relationship, gaslighters will do something called love bombing. They will tell you how wonderful you are, and that feels good to anybody, but the gaslighter overdoes it. They'll push for commitment very quickly, but then you fall off that pedestal they placed you on. And then they do something called devaluing, which means you can do nothing right no matter how hard you try. The gaslighter will tell you that you're not paying enough attention to them, that you need to quit your job and pay more attention to them, but that need will never get filled. So you're in this constant struggle of trying to fill somebody's needs are never going to be met. And it's incredibly frustrating for people.
0: Well, and and this gets back to my first question, I guess, is to where is the line? Because the things that you just mentioned... You know, lying, I mean, people do things to try to get their way sometimes, but that doesn't make them a gaslighter.
2: Right. Well, we can lie just once in a while because we're human, right? But this is a pattern of behavior. So yeah, when you leave a relationship and you want to get back with that person, you say, oh, things will be different this time. And you could really mean it, but a gaslighter, it's a means to an end. There's a big difference between I'm going to work on changing this and I just want you back so I can fulfill that need to get attention. It's It's a whole different scheme. And it also depends on what behaviors led up to that. So if you do have someone saying that what you saw and heard isn't real, uh, that's a real tip-off. You're with a gaslighter rather than just someone that that just occasionally tells you white lies.
0: What about, you know, in an argument when someone says, well, that's not what I said? That uh, sort of sounds gaslighty, but that's not really gaslighting, because that could just be a legitimate difference between what I said and what you heard.
2: That's not gaslighting. And even if you tell your partner, hey, I have an issue with this thing you did and let's talk about it, that's not gaslighting. But telling someone, I don't like the color of your eyes or, You know, you need to lose weight. That's more gaslighting type behavior. And again, we have to look at the whole scheme of their behaviors. But if you did have a concern with your partner's weight, you say, hey, can we talk about this? I'm really concerned about your health. You don't go up to them and just make a really crass comment about their weight. And so it really depends on how it's done and also the motivation behind it. And again, when the gaslighter makes comments and criticisms, it's to control you rather than to work together to solve an issue.
0: I don't like the color of your eyes. <laughs> really, somebody? They'll would-
2: even they'll even get into that type of behavior because what they're trying to do is they're trying to just set you off. They want to keep you off kilter because what the other thing they do is they'll criticize you and then compliment you in the next sentence, and that's really confusing. Because gaslighters, they may act bad, you know, eighty percent of the time, but twenty percent of the time they could be fine, and that's what gets people kind of reeled into these relationships is because the people aren't bad all the time. But my feeling is if you, the relationships. Good 80% of the time and bad 20% and abusive, it's still an abusive relationship and it's best to get out.
0: And one might wonder why you got into the relationship in the first place. Or or at least when this behavior started showing up, little sirens don't go off saying, I got to get out of this is nuts. I got to get out of here
2: because these gaslighters are so good at hiding their behavior. There have even been uh, people that are mental health specialists have gotten into these relationships because on the first date, again, these people act completely normal. They do cognitive empathy. They look like they're completely normal. They're not sociopathic. Uh, They will act just the way you want them to. And then when they know that they've got you sucked into a relationship, then they'll start revealing these behaviors little by little because they cannot keep that mask of normalcy on for that long. You'll see it start slipping and they'll start trying to get into these behaviors. And the other interesting thing is, even if you record these people saying stuff, if they've told you that what you heard isn't real and you show them the recording and have them listen to it, they'll still deny it, even though you have undeniable proof in front of you. They'll say, well, you just misunderstood it. Or they'll focus on the fact, why did you record me? Instead of the fact that they were blatantly lying to you.
0: Do we have any numbers? I mean, how many people uh, do this?
2: Well, people that have personality disorders, particularly sociopathy and narcissism, it's about 2 to 5% of the population. However, we don't have any solid percentages on gaslighting behaviors. It's not a diagnosis in our diagnostic manual. But out of the couples I see, I say probably about 40% of them have at least one partner that engages in gaslighting behaviors. Now, I'll add to that, though, that I primarily work with people with ADHD and anxiety And I think they tend to be more prey of gaslighters because they tend to to be more uh, concerned with how other people are feeling. They tend to feel like uh, they are missing something in life. And so they're more likely to accept the behaviors of the gaslighter. And I think gaslighters on a certain level uh, sense that and they know that and they know that that person may tolerate more than other people would.
0: It would seem to me, and I imagine to other people listening to this, I don't think I've ever been on the receiving end of a gas lighter, but it would seem to me that I wouldn't put up with this for a minute. I mean, if someone is telling me when the lights are flickering that they're not flickering, if someone tells me that the sky is green when I know it's blue, I'm done. I mean, it it doesn't seem like this this would be hard to say goodbye to.
2: And one would think that you would know right away when someone was doing this and that you would be tough enough or strong enough or resilient enough to know this is happening and that's one of the reasons why people tend to stay in these relationships because they feel like other people aren't going to believe them that this person's so terrible especially when this person projects a pretty good image to the outside world image is very important to gaslighters and they'll also tell other people that you're crazy so if you go to those people they'll say oh well they already told me that you're a little off so that they aren't believed so a lot of people think they would not be subject to this but they have been it's interesting to me how many people are very competent intelligent people and yet they have become a victim of gaslighting, whether it's in a relationship or on a global scale because if you start believing something you cannot be deterred from that And that's the really tricky part about gaslighting. And again, if you're in a relationship, it becomes kind of a Stockholm syndrome where you become attached to your captor, so to speak, But And also, it's very difficult for you to leave at the same time. It doesn't make a lot of sense from the outside, but people that have experienced this, they'll tell themselves, you know, how could I have believed this stuff this person was telling me? And again, it's one of the reasons why people are afraid to seek help, uh, because they're concerned that people aren't going to believe them that they were subject to this
0: is there any concern that maybe we're just being a little too sensitive here about some of this that just because somebody says something to you doesn't make you a victim that, that people are smart and in many cases not all I'm sure there are gaslighters who are very convincing and really mess with people's minds but but just because someone attempts to try to manipulate you doesn't make you a victim. I mean, people are smart. People are tough. They can see what it is and and move on.
2: The people that are the victims of these relationships are tough. It's just they are with people that will do whatever it takes to erode them. So uh, you have people that have been subject to years of abuse because gaslighting is emotional abuse. So when we tell people that are victims of abuse that you're just being too sensitive, we're totally negating the fact that they are being abused. And again, that's one of the reasons why people that are in an abusive relationship tend to not leave because they're really concerned that the outside world is going to see them as weak when they are anything but weak.
0: But you've talked about this in in terms of relationships. If somebody just says something like this to someone, you know, casually at a party, that's not gaslighting. I'm not, because someone said this to me, I'm not now a victim of it. Just somebody said something, I don't know what what they're talking about, and, and my life carries on just fine.
2: It's a series of behaviors. So I'll say that again. So it's not just one behavior, it's a series of things that you see. So if I just say to you, I don't like the shirt you're wearing, yeah, that's not gaslighting. But if I've been telling you repeatedly, that you're worthless, or I've been telling you that, you know, you didn't see me cheat on you or see that on my phone. I You, you just kind of, you were making it up and you shouldn't have been in my phone anyway. So I'm going to focus on that. And you are hiding your stuff and blaming somebody for it. That's gaslighting behavior. But somebody going up to you at a party saying, I don't like what you're doing. That's not gaslighting. Right, Again, okay. it's a series of behaviors.
0: It's a re- it, within a relationship.
2: Uh, it's anyone that has the ability to have power and control over others.
0: So in most cases does this just go on forever? I mean it would seem it would just seem to me that at some point almost everybody would say wait a minute, enough is enough. I I, I know what I saw. I know what the truth is. I know I'm being manipulated. I'm out. I'm done.
2: There's usually a watershed moment. And usually what that is, is it's a family member or a friend confronting the person saying, look, you know, we've talked about this before. This person isn't healthy. These are the behaviors I'm seeing. And we need to figure out how to get you out. That's usually what gets people out of that situation. And, again, it's really tough because, you know, in some cases people's safety is threatened. And that's where I recommend that people are concerned about their safety to contact a domestic violence shelter uh, for, uh, you know, opinions or ideas about how to get out safely Uh, also therapy has been found to be really helpful particularly cognitive behavioral therapy which is a style of counseling uh, that again in research has been shown to help a lot of people that have been in these abusive relationships because it takes a while to build up your self-esteem and your ability to feel comfortable to trust other people again
0: does it actually does it often uh, escalate to violence
2: It can quite a bit. In fact, I tell gaslighters that when they're leaving a relationship, make sure you take your pet with you because gaslighters will use manipulation techniques and use your pet against you and even abuse it or or kill it. So it's very important that people take their pet with them.
0: Wow. And do you, as an expert on this, do you see this getting worse, getting better, or, or has it always been there and we're just now talking about it? I mean, the movie was... 70 years ago, the play was 80 years ago. So obviously the the concept has been around, but, but how has it moved? What's the trend?
2: It's been around for a while, but I think emotional abuse really wasn't taken as seriously as a form of abuse because, oh, well, you're not being hit, but it's just as much of a form of abuse as any other. Uh, So that I think, though, that the fact that we're seeing this on a global scale and being more attention is being brought, I think people are recognizing more that this is happening to them in the workplace and at home uh, and with family and friends.
0: When I imagine a relationship where this is happening, I'm imagining that the male is the gaslighter and the female is the victim. But is that always or mostly the case?
2: No, it's actually equal across genders. Now, I may use the, the pronoun he just as a default, but it is equal across uh, men and women equally can be gaslighters.
0: Well, I think that's a surprise. I think that that, you know, from the movie on forward, I mean, you think of of men that being much more male kind of behavior.
2: I think, yeah, that can be a stereotype of it. But definitely I've seen where it's pretty equal across the board.
0: Well, I remember watching the movie and watching Charles Boyer and thinking, "Boy, he's really good at this." I mean, he has really got her thinking she's crazy, but that it's just a movie. But as you point out, this this is real life too and worthy of discussion. Stephanie Sarkis has been my guest. She is author of the book Gaslighting: Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Stephanie.
2: That was great. Thank you.
0: Here's an interesting quirk of human beings. You do things that are embarrassing that if you see other people do, you may laugh or judge them for doing them. But you do them too. For example, talking to yourself You've just done something stupid and you're reprimanding yourself out loud or you're asking yourself a question out loud when someone walks in the room. Suddenly, you look like a crazy person. But talking to yourself is not only insanely common. In fact, we all do it at least a couple of times a day. And some people do it m- much more than that. But it can also be a sign of good things. Studies show that talking to yourself Helps you keep more focused and alert. Repeating a story. While you probably know if you've told a story before, it turns out that people have a very difficult time recalling who they told it to. Lying about seeing a movie. When it comes to important movies or important books, people lie about it because they want to appear smart. A surprising number of people lied about seeing the Godfather movie in a 2011 poll. Getting song lyrics wrong. Song lyrics are, as you know, hard to make out sometimes, so we make up what we think we hear. This really irritates those people who really do know the lyrics, but those people probably get the lyrics to other songs wrong. So we shouldn't be too quick to judge. And that is something you should know. We are now officially in the holiday season, and we have lots of great episodes coming up for you in the coming weeks. So please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and share it with a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.